Luke chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Uh, let's uh, just bow in prayer, shall we, as we uh, get settled in. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word now. And uh, as it's being taught here and also next door in the Sunday school, we pray that uh, your word would be taught clearly and accurately. And uh, Father, we pray mostly that by your spirit that uh, we would be enlightened and that we would be refreshed and challenged and encouraged uh, to put our faith in Christ. And we pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the problems I think that we have as 21st century Christians reading the Gospels is that we can sometimes miss the shock value of what Jesus says in his parables. Uh, let me illustrate that for you uh, by playing a word association game. So I say a word and you think about what comes into your head when I say the word. So here's a word, Samaritan. What comes into your head when I say Samaritan? Good, good. I'm glad you said that because that's what I was hoping. Uh, that's what we think of, isn't it? When we think of Samaritan, we think good uh, because we think of the good Samaritan. Uh, that's how, how our society uh, now thinks. Uh, in fact, uh, when you see in the media someone who's gone and done something 
good for people. There was a bloke in Queensland was named Citizen of the Year last uh, month and the newspapers said that he was a Samaritan because he went out and he helped people in the floods. Uh, people who are good are Samaritans. The, the two words are interchangeable and that's why we have those bins. You know those clothing bins? You go put your old clothes into the bin and it gets distributed to the poor. Uh, Samaritan equals good. We expect uh, Samaritans to be good people. But we wouldn't if we lived in Jesus' day. Uh, the only way we think that, the only reason we think that way is because we are so familiar with the parable of Jesus. Uh, in Jesus, he told the story, didn't he, about the uh, fellow who was on the road, uh, he was on a journey, he was attacked by bandits. There he was, left lying, bleeding, bloodied, bruised and broken. All these people walked past him. The one person who came and stopped and helped him was a Samaritan. Now, that was, to Jesus' hearers, a scandal because the last person you'd expect to do something good and to help a person would be a Samaritan. So you see how we miss the shock value? because we're so familiar with the teaching of Jesus. Here's another word association. Uh, I say the word Pharisee. What do you think of? Self-righteous. Self Any other thoughts? Yeah. What's that? Teachers of the law. Priests. Yep. It's often a very thumbs down kind of reaction, isn't it? Because do the words bad person, do the words religious hypocrite come to your mind? Well, that's because we have been exposed to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus, in his day, exposed the Pharisees in terms of their motivations. But if you lived in Jesus' day, that would have been a shock to you because the Pharisees were the religious leaders they were the good guys. They were the people who studied the Bible, who knew the Bible, who prayed regularly. They were the ministers, the elders, the, you know, the bishops, the moderators. They were the good guys. And so when Jesus actually exposes the Pharisees, that was a shock to the people. Here's another word. I say the word tax collector. And what do you think? All right, this is a bit difficult, this one, isn't it? Because it's a bit different. Uh, I, you think tax collector first century, is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? It's a thumbs down. You think tax collector 21st century, is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? It's, yeah, it's sort of, you know, <laughs> sort of half. Does anyone, anyone here work for the Australian tax office? Okay, good. We can think, we can speak freely, can't we? Because, uh, you know, you go to a party, you meet someone for the first time, you say, what do you do for a living? They say, I work for the tax department. Where does the conversation go after that? <laughs> oh, you know, you might, um, you might crack a joke. Uh, you might um, have a whinge about having to do your BAS statement. Uh, you might sort of complain about the government wasting your tax, tax money. But... Um, you're not likely to spit on the person, are you? Or uh, glass them, or uh, toss them out. 
I mean, you might, but that, that would actually say more about you than it would about them because, uh, you know, tax collectors today, we've got this sort of, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Often they're uh, professional people that have got degrees in accountancy and law and their parents are probably really very proud of them. It's not quite the same. But in the first century, it was different. In the first century, you met a person who was a tax collector at a party and may very well spit on them or glass them or toss them out. Think about what a tax collector in the first century was. Judea was a country that was occupied by a foreign force, an invading army, the Romans an occupying force. And the Romans ruled Judea with brutal force. Uh, You rebel against the Roman authorities. What did they do to you? They crucified you. There were literally thousands of Jews who were, we only remember one, but there were thousands of Jews crucified for acts of rebellion against Rome. And the Romans imposed taxes on the peoples whom they occupied. Now, when we pay taxes, in theory, the taxes go back into building roads and hospitals and schools and defence forces and social security networks and so on, but the Roman taxes were extracted from the people and extracted from the nation and they were funnelled back to Rome to finance Caesar with his projects. You've been to Rome, you've seen some of the big buildings there, well paid for by the peasants of the empire. More than that, the heavy taxation was used in order to keep the people poor, to subjugate the people, so they didn't have the strength to fight back. Now, who did they get to collect the taxes? That's the question. See, they, they had this policy of trying to get local people to do the tax collection. Now, can you imagine the job advertisement for that? I mean, who would want the job? How would you attract a person? Because in order to collect taxes, what they would be doing is that they would be taking money from their own people They would be working for the enemy and they would be shunting that money to Rome. How would you entice someone to take on a job like that? Well, the only answer is every man's got his price, they say, and it's money. So the deal was that they could collect the taxes, but they could keep a huge percentage of the taxes for themselves. And they'd get rich at the expense of their own people. Now, what do you call a person like that? Well, in the Australian vernacular, we've got a few words, but I'm not going to use them here. Uh, Politely, at least, you would say that they were an absolute traitor to their families, to their people, to their nation. And so here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, if you'd care to open that up in front of you, in Luke 18, there's a group of people that are standing around Jesus and he says to them, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. 
It says these two, these two men, and uh, one day they head up to the temple. Uh, one of the men was a Pharisee. And so you can imagine Jesus is here is saying, well, that's, that sounds reasonable. I mean, of course the Pharisee would be heading up to the temple. That's where you'd expect this, the Pharisee to be. Uh, he's the religious guy. He's the good guy. He's the guy that's going up to pray. Of course, there's nothing unusual about the story so far. And then Jesus says the other man was a tax collector. Now, given the background I've just described, you, can you now imagine Jesus is here is going, hang on a moment, what's he doing there? Why would he be going up to God's temple? What a hypocrite. What a religious hypocrite. How dare he go up to the temple of the Lord? And Jesus says that the reason they went was to pray. And the two men began to pray. Well, let's have a look at their prayers. If we turn to Luke 18 in verse 11, first of all, the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, it causes us to think about uh, the, what's going on in this Pharisee's mind and in his heart. And I want to ask the question, it's the obvious question, and that is, what do you think that he thought that God would think about him? Well, it seems that he thought that God would have been fairly pleased with him, that he would be okay in God's sight. Now, there's three types of reasons that he gives for his confidence that God would think pretty well of him. Three types of reasons. Uh, let me share them with you. Firstly, he says to God, there's a whole stack of things that I don't do. Right? I don't do robbing. I don't do evil. And I don't do adultery. So there's, those are the things I don't do. Secondly, there's certain things that I do do. I, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I get. Uh, mind you, the uh, Old Testament law only required a person to fast once a year, uh, but he fasts twice a week. So there's certain things I don't do, there's certain things that I do do, and thirdly, he says, Lord, I'm not like other men. Uh, especially, uh, Father, this tax collector that you see standing behind me. So that's his rationale. There's certain things I don't do, there's certain things I do do, and I'm better than others. Now, what was he really praying about? Well, uh, Jesus says in verse 11 that he prayed about himself. Uh, actually, the original Greek, uh, I don't mean to blind you with you know, Greek, but uh, this one's interesting. I think there's a few interesting things in this passage, but the, in the original Greek, uh, it, uh, doesn't, uh, it can equally be translated as he prayed to himself. 
He prayed to himself. And uh, I guess it's uh, indicating that uh, maybe God wasn't actually listening to his prayer. Maybe that wasn't really the intent. One of the Psalms says that, uh, Lord, if I harboured sin in my heart, then you would not listen to my prayer. So what's missing from his prayer? Well, do I need to say it? Confession of sin. Uh, There is no sense in which he seems to be acknowledging that he is a sinful person standing before a holy God. Now, the Bible tells us, of course, that uh, none of us, not one of us, love and serve and trust and obey God as we should. We talked a lot about that last week when we looked at the issue of idols and idolatry. And I guess that, you know, if you take a good, honest look at yourself, uh, we'd, we'd all need to conclude that we are guilty of sin. But there's a question mark about how do we try to deal with our guilt? And it it seems that if you look at people, study people, uh, that there are a few different ways that people try to deal with their guilt. One of the most obvious ways of dealing with guilt is that you deny it. You just say, I'm not guilty. I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, This bloke says, well, Lord, you know, I don't do adultery. Remember what Jesus said, you know, about something about looking at a woman lustfully? I wonder how he'd... uh, match up on that particular score but he he denies sin Uh, another way of uh, dealing with your guilt is that you um, compare yourself with others Uh, so you know I'm I'm better than the next person I I wonder how we go if we compare ourselves to God rather than to the next person God in whose image we've been made the other thing is you, you can do is you can kind of cover up our guilt uh, by doing religious things, by doing rituals and you know, being active in church and so on. I mean, think about this Pharisee. He fasted more than 100 times a year uh, when the law only required him to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, he says, I get a tenth of all I get Well, the law required that you give a tenth of your income, but we know that the Pharisees would give a tenth of their um, their veggie patch, or their little, you know, their 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 mint and their and their herbs and so on. These guys went over the top uh, because, well, it it actually kind of covers up sin by doing religious things. Uh, Friends, we're all guilty in God's eyes. And the question that this passage challenges us with is how do we deal with that guilt? Let's have a look at the prayer of the uh, tax collector in verse 13 where Jesus says that the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. Now, you know, when you think of it, if you were to think of a picture of a of a first century tax collector, what would the picture look like? I don't know about you, but I think of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He's seen the Sunday school you know, book pictures. He's always a kind of like this short, happy, jovial, you know, 
nice guy that climbs up this tree and looks down on Jesus and he's all very excited and so on. And, you know, the, the reality is we need to not lose sight of the fact that these men were rightfully despised, that they were greedy traitors against God's people. And here he is, he's praying. What is his attitude in prayer? Well, we're told he stood at a distance. A distance from what? Maybe the altar. We're told that he wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven and that he beat his breast, which is a old-fashioned Jewish way of just expressing deep sorrow. We don't know what had gone on in his life. Jesus doesn't say that. But something was going on, wasn't it? Because he came burdened with a sense of his guilt. There's only one way that that guilt could be dealt with. And God, he says in verse 13, turns, he speaks to God. It's a very, very simple prayer. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Simple prayer, isn't it? Nothing fancy about it. Let me say just two things about that prayer. Uh, firstly, and I've got to get back to the Greek. I'm sorry about this, but um, it's inter- I, think, I find it interesting. Uh, but uh, the original Greek can also be translated as God have mercy on me, the sinner. The word the is actually there in the original. God have mercy on me, the sinner. It seems to imply that he's got an understanding of the gravity of his situation. It's not unlike Paul when Paul describes himself as being the chief of all of the sinners. God have mercy on me, the sinner. The second thing in his prayer, and that is the word mercy, Mercy uh, is uh, when God does not give us something which we do deserve negatively. Here the word uh, used for mercy is a very special word. It doesn't simply mean to sweep our guilt under the carpet uh, as if you know it doesn't matter that this man had made money his idol and ripped off his his own people. No, it's a word that implies that God is rightfully angry and this man knows that. There's no trying to cover things up here. And he prays here that God would take his anger that is rightfully directed towards him and turn that anger away and direct it to another, direct it to a sacrifice. That's the word mercy here. It's the same word group that you get the word atonement from. Now remember where these two men were. Where were they praying? They were in the in the temple. What's one of the main things that you find in a temple? An altar. 
standing be- these men were standing before the altar. Now, what is an altar? Well, an altar is something which symbolizes some important truths. The altar tells us that there is such a thing as sin and guilt. The altar tells us that God takes sin very, very seriously. And the altar tells us that the only way, that the one way that the guilt of sin can be dealt with is by that guilt being placed on another, by God turning his wrath away from us and onto a sacrifice. That's what an altar says. And the tax collector was begging for this for himself. Whereas the Pharisee was not. Now, which man was okay in God's sight? That's the punchline of this parable, isn't it? Because in verse 14, what Jesus said honestly would have shocked his hearers because he says, I tell you the truth, that it was the one who went home that day justified in the sight of God was the not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. Can you imagine the shock impact of that to Jesus' hearers? The word justified uh, is an interesting word here. Uh, The word justified, it's a legal word. It comes from the law courts. You see, even today, the way that people deal with their own guilt... Uh, it's it's often the you know you've you've done something really terrible, and you go to a counsellor and uh, you often or friends, and they're told look don't worry about it everyone else is doing it. I've been told that before I became a Christian I I had done the wrong thing I'd sinned, and I went and told someone about it and they said don't worry about it Scott. Everybody else does it and everyone else would have done it in your, in their, in your situation. And so we kind of rationalise ourselves, don't we? Well, here the word justification comes from the law courts. And it means not that the guilt was just sort of brushed under the carpet, not that the guilt was actually said, well, you're just the same as everybody else or maybe even better than everybody else. No, it says that the guilt has been dealt with because the judge has acquitted you of the crime. And the only way that you and I could be acquitted by God is to have the guilt lifted off us and placed onto another. Now Jesus, of course, knew that it would not be long before there would be another altar that would be built on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It would be in the shape of a cross and that the sacrifice would be himself as he bore the sin of many have a look at how Paul, the Apostle, describes this in Romans chapter 3. I've printed this for you on your outlines, by the way, uh, to try to be helpful. In Romans chapter 3, using the same sort of words as the uh, tax collector and Jesus used, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, that's you and me. We're included. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. That's the mercy language through faith in his blood. Now that's great news, isn't it? It's great news because it tells us and the example of the tax collector says to us that no matter who we are, no matter what we have done, no matter how we have lived, that the death of Christ on the, on the cross can deal with our guilt. That God's wrath can be turned away from us and onto his own son. Now the tax collector was the scum of the earth. He was the lowest of the lows. And yet Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for him. I don't know what the equivalent these days would be of the first century tax collector. It's not someone who works for the ATO. That's not the equivalent. It's someone who, I don't know, maybe uh, if you lived in... France during the Second World War, occupied by the Nazis. It might be your French neighbour who goes and works for the, uh, for the Nazis. Uh, in our own day, it, it could be the, uh, the drug lord who's filthy rich at the expense of the misery of other people. And that's what the tax collector was like. The burden of his guilt was lifted. But he's not the only kind of person who carries a burden for sin because the Pharisee did as well. He just didn't face up to it. And I want to say that it's possible for us to be a little bit in that camp. It's possible for us to to look like we're okay with God and to even kind of think that we're okay or to pretend that we're okay with God but just be like the Pharisee. Let me tell you a story about a man I know I knew him as a younger man. Uh, he grew up in the Presbyterian church. Uh, his dad was one of the elders of the church. Uh, his family were kind of like the pillars of the church. Literally, they probably paid for the pillars of the church. There was all these plaques around the building, you know, in, with the names of his ancestors that they'd paid for this and, and so on. Uh, he came to church every Sunday. He sung in the choir the youngest member of the choir. He was at Bible study group, my Bible study group, every Wednesday night, and I thought I knew him reasonably well. Till the day he knocked on my door and almost in tears shared with me that he was a fraud. All those years he'd looked like a Christian. He didn't do some things. You wouldn't find him drunk down the pub on a Friday night. He did do other things. He sung in the church choir, went to Bible study, was in church every Sunday. And to be honest, he was better than a lot of other people in terms of his morality. Good guy. But it was a cover-up because he had never dealt with his sin. Never. He said to me, Scott, I know my own heart. I know that I am sinful. I know that uh, I come to church every Sunday and almost every Sunday I hear about Christ and what he's done for me on the cross, but my pride, my identity, who I am, what I do, has meant that I, I, I listen 
to the words of the gospel, but I don't hear in my heart. I shut off spiritually. It was time for this young man to stop being like the Pharisee and be a bit more like the tax collector, which he did. He put his trust in Christ and in his own way he cried out, Lord God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He was a changed man. It's funny about that kind of change, actually, because outwardly nothing changed. <laughs> still went to church every Sunday, still sung in the choir, still came to Bible study on Wednesday night, still had the plaques around the church building in the name of his ancestors. And, but inwardly, he was full of joy, Rather than being burdened by the guilt of his sin that he was trying to cover up, he experienced the joy and the delight and the freedom and the forgiveness that can only come through having a sin dealt with by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So I've got to ask the question, do you experience that joy? Have you experienced that forgiveness? Uh, have you experienced what it means to have that burden of your guilt lifted from you? Have you experienced that? Finally, let me say one last thing. And I won't make too much of it. I'll just drop this one on you and you can think about it. Because I think there's another way that we can be like the Pharisee. Uh, we, we, can be, we, we can be people who, who do trust in Christ, uh, who... Um, We've made a commitment to Christ many years ago. We've been brought up knowing and loving Christ in our families. And it's a, it's a genuine understanding of the gospel that which we, we own for ourselves. But you know what it's like in the Christian life? As you get older, you can get a little bit crusty and uh, the, uh, the joy can kind of fade away a little bit. Uh, and it's often because a little bit of pride starts to creep into our lives and that's the I'm better than the next bloke kind of syndrome you notice that it's, uh, it's possible and we might be very passionate about the gospel but we can find ourselves starting to look down upon others because they don't have the quite, this quite as accurate understanding as ourselves or well, they're not quite as involved in church life activities as us and we can start to think Lord thank you that I'm better than them story about a Sunday school teacher teaches this parable to her class gets to the end and she says well kids let's just thank God that we're not like that Pharisee. <laughs> Friends, let's make sure that we are people, the kind of people who cry out to God, uh, Dear God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Now let's keep on doing that because the great antidote to pride creeping into the Christian life is the humility that comes through acknowledging what Jesus has done for us. You know, Christ finishes off this parable that says that uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled 
but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this um, uh, shock treatment that Jesus put his hearers through, uh, for he spoke to those who were proud of their own self-righteousness and looked down on others. Uh, We pray that we would not be like that. Help us to uh, be people who have a right understanding of our uh, sinfulness and a right appreciation of how significant that is and a right commitment to trusting in the cross of Christ. And help us as we progress in the Christian life to uh, uh, not allow pride to creep in, but to keep on looking backwards to uh, uh, to Calvary. And Father, we pray for uh, ourselves, particularly even the young people in our church growing up in a Christian household, that uh, they wouldn't be putting their trust in their uh, family background, uh, but rather in Christ and in him alone. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.